Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week I talked to Ellen Clifford, author of The War on Disabled People, Capitalism, Welfare and the Making of a Human Catastrophe, who's also on the steering committee of DPAC, Disabled People Against the Cuts. We discuss successive UK government's breaches of the human rights of disabled people, how the left can be made a more inclusive space for disabled activists, and how the pandemic has affected the lives of disabled people after a decade of austerity. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. And if you want access to the full hour-long episode of the show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, Support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes and share your favorite episodes with friends and on social media tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Ellen Clifford on Disabled People's Fight Against Austerity. Hello, Ellen Clifford, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Thank you for having me on. Good. It's great to have you here. So today we're going to be talking a bit about disability, uh, about the disabled people's movement and about um, how disabled people have been impacted by government policy really over the, you know, at least the last decade. And I want to start by talking about DPAC, Disabled People Against Cuts. Now you're on the National Steering Group for DPAC. Can you tell us a bit about how the organisation got started and what its campaigning aims were? So DPAC was formed out of a protest outside the Tory party conference in October 2010. It was pretty clear from as soon as the coalition government came into power that it was going to be bad news for disabled people in the George Osborne's first budget in the June. He announced an intention to cut the disability living allowance budget by 20%. And at that time, the disability benefit fraud figures were no more than 0.5%. So it was pretty easy to work out that there were going to be disabled people who really, really needed that benefit, who it was going to be taken away from. There'd also been the work capability assessment. Now, that was developed by New Labour. Uh, They were intending to pilot it, but... As soon as the coalition government came into power, they just rolled it out immediately. And even before they came in, there had started to be cases of people taking their own lives after they'd been found wrongly fit for work. So people in such despair that their incomes were about to disappear and they had no way of going and earning a living uh, and, and taking their own lives. So disabled people already felt we had a lot to campaign about in, in that 2010. But mm. disabled people's organisations, uh, which were mainly constituted as, as charities, weren't really in a position to do the kind of radical campaigning that some of us felt was needed. And that's why DPAC was set up to provide a, a national coordination for radical opposition to what was coming in. As you just said, there were a load of reasons why the cuts disproportionately affected disabled people. But one of the main ones was that disabled people are much more likely to live in poverty. So the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty found that nearly half of those in poverty are for families that include a disabled person. And there are clearly lots of drivers for this. One, that disabled people will tend to have lower incomes, but also that poverty can affect people's mental and physical health in such a way 
that makes disabilities more common. Do you think that there's sufficient awareness of the links between poverty and disability in the way that we, we discuss these issues? Absolutely not. Uh, mm. There is this intrinsic relationship, as you say, between disability and poverty. But the majority of people, and I include policy makers within that, don't seem to understand that. I, I think mm. that's partly to do with the fact that the wider public's perceptions of disability are still so shrouded in, in myths and misperceptions. So there's so many common yeah these common misperceptions so only eight percent of disabled people actually need to use a wheelchair yet most people commonly associate the idea Mm. of disability with needing to use a wheelchair the way that the dominant narrative of disability in society locates the problem of disability within us whether it's within our bodies or, or our minds it treats it very much as an individual problem When actually, according to what we call the social model of disability, which is the way of looking at disability that politicised disabled people use, we see disability as a social construct and we identify the oppressions we face from society that lead to us being disadvantaged. We don't focus on the individual problems that society likes likes to, to see us as having. We focus on uh, the the social and economic factors uh, of our oppression, and and poverty mm. is a massive uh, one of those. Um, so disabled people in this country are now three times more likely to live in severe material deprivation than, than other people, and that figures from quite a few years ago. It, it's probably much worse than that now. Disability is actually everywhere. We're twenty one percent of the population in the UK. We're the world's largest minority, and yet we are are still frequently overlooked, I think. Uh, I also think that a lot of people don't view disability through an equalities prism. They still see it as a matter of personal tragedy and people find it very hard to kind of link up what they see as more political and economic concepts such as poverty with disability, which they see as a primarily medical and personal problem. I'm wondering if you think that like that model of organising for disabled people, as in setting up groups that are specifically designed to advocate for disabled people, is a better way to get the attention of other organisations? Or should there be mechanisms to allow, like more mechanisms to allow disabled people, for example, to like get directly involved in the Labour movement, to have a voice in the Labour Party, like all of these ways that voices can be elevated within the wider movement itself. Now, obviously, that would be ideal. But I'm just wondering if you think that, you know, we're ever really going to see enough acceptance of these very valid points that you're raising for that to be made a reality? Yeah, I mean, that that's um, it's actually a question that I think about continuously, um, why we actually you know, need these, these these separate groups. Traditionally, disabled people did, you know, campaign it in isolation and they did start out campaigning specifically on disability issues specifically. That's historic in that the first self-organising of disabled people was in residential homes. So people mm-hmm. had that basis of living together and then campaigning from there. And then... I would say that the kind of campaigning in the sort of 1980s, 1990s was kind of a isolationist in that people were campaigning, wanted to campaign just on disability. There was a distrust of of non-disabled people unless people have a a lived experience of of disability. It is difficult for people to, to understand 
because uh, of all those kind of mis- misperceptions around disability. However, the what distinguishes Deepak from earlier iterations of the disabled people's movement is the deliberate strategic decision to want to build alliances with the left mm. and to work no longer in isolation. The analysis that the issues that disabled people were facing were part of wider political and economics and that in order to understand what was happening to us and therefore create an effective strategy for resistance that that we needed to understand those wider politics and economics Mm. and the most effective way was to make alliances you know more widely but I still advocate for a need for a layer of self-organization and that's because of that the continual barriers we face um, in trying to join wider groups in order to include deaf uh, and disabled people. So deaf people uh, with a big D, as in uh, British Sign Language users, there are cost implications. It's not simply a case of saying, well, we welcome deaf and disabled people to to come and join our campaign. You actually have to thought about the resources that are needed for that to happen. That is the material issue that, that that campaigns trade union branches you know CLPs uh, uh, face it's still common whenever you go to to address disabled um, Labour Party members the first thing they will still talk about um, are, are the barriers to access so there's both a material reason for that and yet it's still it is still quite frustrating that in in 2021 people aren't prioritizing access and inclusion and not thinking about access budgets I mean it has to be thought about from from the very start and Deepak was was really delighted to work with the the world transformed uh this year who actually for the first time put together an access budget and that was just I mean that was that was brilliant because every year um TWT has happened there (laughs) there was no access budget and it was all very last minute and we would have to vigorously campaign and, and threaten to withdraw and yeah, I mean, in every group, I mean, Deepak doesn't, we're, we're, we're a united front. Uh, we, one of the things I love best about Deepak is that we're, we're not sectarian. We've never experienced mm. that, although we all come from, you know, different groups, different campaigns and, and different traditions. I think possibly that's because the, we realize the, the stakes are so high at the moment that, that, you know, we, we don't let those, differences divide us we're we're very united so we work with a full range of of groups and campaigns on the left we actively give solidarity and we use that as a way of a way of building unity but also of educating people uh, around disability but whenever we start working with a new group we always face that the, the access and inclusion issue and people don't don't get it often and sometimes that means you have to have these constant questions about how far do you push the issue? You understand there are material you know, issues around cost, etc. But there are also ways you can address it if, if you want to and if the will is there. So, yeah, constant question that we, we, we have to face is how far we challenge, how far we offer solutions, etc. For those like activists and organisers listening uh, to this who are thinking, you know, what can we do to create an environment that is more inclusive for disabled people? What do you think some of the most important first steps can be? Um, 
the first thing that comes to mind for me is actually theoretically I think mm. that the social model of disability is really fundamental for people to understand it was developed by disabled campaigners uh, in the 19s so, I mean that grew out of the union of the uh, UPS union of the physically impaired against segregation mm. and that that's really where we trace the disabled people's movements origins in Britain back to UPS um, and they developed this idea of understanding disability as a social uh, as a an oppression uh, equal to yeah. other oppressions so Vic Finkelstein um, had actually come from South Africa where he'd a disabled man who campaigned against apartheid there and living in, in Britain he and others like Paul Hunt around him in UP, UPS developed a theory of disabled people's oppression which was then developed into what's known as a social model of of disability by disabled academics and largely they were the main thinkers here were were Marxists and and they came up with the social model uh, of disability and I just think it's such a shame that it's not widely more widely understood on the left Mm. um again when we go into spaces with talking about access and inclusion but we're also talking about the social model and and trying to help people to understand it as a political and economic oppression rather than as a matter of you know pity personal tragedy once people understand that I think they start to see things in a different way and then from there I think leads to the will to start to find solutions for overcoming you know the, the access and inclusion barriers Mm. You mentioned your book, The War on Disabled People, and I want to talk now about all the ways in which what's happened to disabled people in the last kind of decade or so can be described as a war. So the first is the evidence that the government has consistently breached the human rights of disabled people. So evidence was submitted to a special UN committee claiming the government was breaching its human rights obligations to disabled people. And that was borne out by successive investigations, including the 2019 report from the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty. And that the government responded to by lodging a complaint with the UN, which is obviously, you know, just shocking that it had its failings laid out in front of it and decided to take that up with the UN rather than address them. Why do you think that successive conservative governments have been so callous in their treatment of disabled people and often repeatedly refused to change policy when it's been shown to actually be in breach of international human rights law? Not of the time disabled campaigners over the last decade have discussed and debated how far we think it was a deliberate attack. Um, a war mm. A war does sound quite... Quite grandiose. Are we over exaggerating there? Obviously, my publisher. I don't wanted... think it's. I don't think it's illegitimate at all. I think that's. No, I don't. Comment. I mean, th- there was the aspect there that the publishers wanted a <laughs> snappy. Yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look, what what concerned the United Nations so much was was the scale of the attacks, what we call the attacks on disabled people, the numbers of people it was affecting, the amount of harm that was that was being caused. For me, it was that the the successive governments uh, were prioritising uh, the, the economic situation. Mm-hmm. They had the the austerity agenda, which we know was a political choice, not a necessity. There were things mm-hmm. they wanted to achieve with that. 
They wanted to make sure that the financial crisis did not lead to uh, a knock-on in terms of in, in terms of profits. Uh, they wanted to ensure business confidence and all these things that were very important to them were more important than what was happening to disabled people. The amount of lies and spin that went on over the last decade and that was there was actually a whole chapter on that but it it was just too big to include but it's phenomenal it used to be shameful you know for politicians to lie and (laughs) to lie in parliament and that's how we got the Disabilities Discrimination Act actually in 95 because Sir Nicholas Scott was caught lying caught by his own daughter actually who worked for a disability organisation at the time (laughs) caught lying in parliament and the shame of that led to the DDA coming in Uh, it wasn't disabled people actually campaigning for the civil rights bill uh <laughs> but we got the dda and that that was definitely that definitely progress estimate Clay, how many times has, has she lied in parliament without consequence yeah i mean there's just so many examples of of blatant spin manipulation of figures etc so to go to those lengths they must be conscious the dwp the government must be conscious mm. of what they're doing um, what we found is that a lot of charities were quite were, were just at sea. They were lost about how to approach the situation because lobbying mentality is, you know, you, you go in, you find what shared goals, shared values you have yeah. and use those to progress uh, an achievable win, uh, you know, that, that both sides are happy on. This was just an unprecedented situation for, for charities who were lobbying and that there were no longer any shared basis of values to go in on. Mm. What they tried to do is compile evidence to show the impacts of what they were doing. Well, that's only gonna gonna work if the you know the government, the people in power, care, aren't yeah. aware or they care, mm. uh, and I, they were aware, uh, and they'd made a calculated decision that that this was what they were going to do, um, and they went ahead with it. Uh, in terms of welfare reform, I think I looked at that, and there were there were three main goals with that. I think it, it was about about cuts. Um, savings that needed to to be made, and I think I think there there was a bit of a conflict perhaps between George Osborne wanting to cut budgets and Ian Duncan Smith with his grand universal credit. I'm going to save everyone plan. Universal yeah. credit just couldn't be put in competently <laughs> without a huge investment, and yeah, it was being done at the time when budgets were being cut. Privatization of the welfare sector. And then this overriding aim to, to restore business confidence through things like workfare, through bringing in a punitive, mm. a punitive approach to the social security system so that people would consider that they were better off in work that, than on benefits. So, and when we've got a time of increasing insecure jobs, wages very, very low, conditions in work getting worse people having to work longer hours doing more less and less autonomy then in order for your experience out of work to be worse than that in work Mm. they had to make they had to make it much tougher and more unbearable to to be on benefits and these were their goals and they thought that those were more important than, than what would happen when we brought up cases of individual suicides and benefit deaths yeah. they always say well there's no causal link the 
<laughs> they say the mental health is extremely complex. You can't say that it was, you know, that it was the, the benefit changes, stopping that person's benefits that, that led to themselves, led to a person killing themselves. Um, they were obviously mentally unwell to begin with. And that's, you know, partly because they don't want to take responsibility for it. But I, I also think that, that there are sections uh, who wouldn't publicly say it, but who do wonder how they can continue to manage the economy in the way that they want to in the interests of profit at the same time as supporting increasing numbers of people who don't fit into the workforce and actually those numbers are increasing that disability prevalence is rising um, and that's partly because um, there are more, for example, babies being born with impairments are living long, longer. There do seem to be more more cases of, of autism, but some of that is directly down to their own policies. So <laughs> worsening labour conditions, the state of the economy, the cost of housing, etc., is leading to, to more and more mental distress. But also I think more people are now resorting to an identification as disabled in mm. order to secure protections for themselves because they don't feel that they fit into the, the workforce, what, what's being required of people, the performance levels, mm. um, lack of lack of autonomy, uh, standardisation also of the way that, that, mm. that, that work is, is managed mean that fewer and fewer people actually fit into that standard of the, you know, the ideal worker and are effectively being pushed out of the, the labour force in that way. That's, I think, a really interesting point that like the war on disabled people is part of the wider push towards precarity in the workforce and indeed the kind of wider like war against marginalized groups in society that we've seen for a long time but particularly since the financial crisis and you mentioned a lot of economic reasons that that might be the case there but it also seems to me like part of the reason for that onslaught was to make ordinary people feel powerless in the wake of a big crisis that really dented the legitimacy of the system. And that's probably, I mean, that seems to me why organisations like Deepak are so important and so much better in a lot of ways than a lot of disabled charities because they're giving people a sense of their own power and um, and voice, really, which is often, you know, it's something that the government deliberately wanted to take away. Yeah, one of our strategic aims with, with Deepak is, is absolutely that, to give people a sense of empowerment and hope our tactics are often considered by some uh, as thuggish. I think those words have been used. We don't mind a swear word or two. Um, I, I think one of our, well, we've got a couple of favourite actions. I think one of them was our balls to the budget protest in March 2016 when Osborne was announcing Further, I think it was at 15 billion uh, of cuts to the welfare state, which, you know, had been in the, the Tory manifesto when they were re-elected with a stronger majority and disabled people were in absolute despair. And we wanted to give, you know, people a, a smile just because just <laughs> just being able to smile sometimes can can really lift your spirits and give you a reason for carrying on. So we worked with a group called the Banner Collective and made a massive, massive banner that said balls to the budget with two fingers up and, and hung it opposite Parliament. And um, some of our allies inside the, the chamber were hearing, that, were saying that 
the word was going around that you could see this this banner from the terrace and MPs were popping out of the budget to come and have a look at it. And we then we then uh, blocked Westminster Bridge with it. I think uh, we also had had a lot of plastic balls at that, given that it was balls <laughs> to the budget and they became extremely popular, despite the fact that we hadn't really reckoned on the fact none of us can throw very well. <laughs> so we only, only hit ourselves with the balls, um, which the police found <laughs> hilarious. Um, but that was so popular, we then took the balls to uh, Manchester for the Tory Pie conference that year. And uh, we were throwing them at uh, people going into the conference. And one of them hit Boris on the shoulder. Um, And that was a a high point. But what happens with our actions is that people who can't come, so many disabled people obviously can't leave their homes. And that's, you know, you were talking about barriers to organising. That is just just so massive. And increasingly with the cuts to local authority budgets, it's not just that people can, you know, decreasingly, you know, get out of their homes. It, it, it's also support to to use the toilet or eat or or drink. But so people can't basically, you know, often come physically. But if they've got spare money, they will send them. And I do feel when we're planning an action, an enormous sense of responsibility because, you know, that these are people on very low incomes. <laughs> Um, I think benefits represent what's it? People who didn't receive the twenty-pound uplift to universal credit, uh, their benefits are thirty-three point nine percent of minimum income standard. I think so. You know, the, people need this money, but they want to send it, and I feel a responsibility mm-hmm. to do something that that they're gonna, then going to think it was worthwhile. And once that ball hit Boris, I knew we'd done the job. <laughs> so it, yeah, I mean, it, it can give people a, a sense of, of agency and. Yeah, empowerment, and and there is that because you're feeling so at the mercy uh, mm. of everything when you're disabled. You're worrying about your assessments, and people won't just have one assessment. You know, you you've got your work capability assessment, your personal independence payment, and your social care. But you know, some people will will need all of those. Um, so people are living in constant fear and anxiety and, and terror. So we deliberately do things to try and help people feel more empowered and I think you know largely largely I'd say that that that's one of the the biggest things we've actually achieved since 2010 is just to make people feel that there is something they want to carry on living for and Mm -hmm. and to not give up I think you know the the thing that you said there about how your tactics have been described as as thuggish is so ironic given that the government's austerity program has caused so much kind of pain and, and and hardship and ultimately you know deaths in wider <laughs> yeah. society. I mean, like there's obviously that that stat that the BMA put together about austerities led to 120,000 excess deaths, more than actually the number that have died from COVID in the UK so far. Though obviously yeah. that figure is going to go up. And in both cases, disabled people are disproportionately represented. But that figure has been controversial not only in the Conservative Party, but also in the wider media. Why do you think it is so hard for people to accept that austerity has actually killed people? I think there are some sections of the population who haven't directly experienced what's happening. Mm. When we talk about disability, you see people do have this idea that who would hurt who would want to hurt a disabled person yeah. tapping into that kind of you know pity image poor them mm. vulnerable people who would want to hurt a disabled person and 
that that's a myth that's actually really unhelpful. We see it in, for example, the abuses that go on in special services, segregated services, you know, such as residential homes. Disabled women are massively uh, more at risk of sexual abuse than than non-disabled women, particularly women without verbal communication and with learning difficulties. Mm. Now, most people don't believe that could be true because they think, well, who would want to rape a disabled woman? So it, mm. it actually makes it much harder to uncover abuse and get those very serious issues addressed. Mm. Parents will often think that their children, their disabled children, are safer in segregated services rather than in the wild and dangerous communities. Um, and there is a huge amount of disability, hostility and hate crime in the community. But I would say you're still safer. You're safer from very dangerous types of of abuse so there isn't that recognition to begin with within society that this can happen so when you then take it on that much larger wider level you've got a government and the government were you know throughout the last decade repeating that they protect the most vulnerable and I think a lot of people did take that at face value for for all that disabled activists would would scoff whenever they said that I think people did believe that that why would why would a government target disabled people and if you look at the distribution of cuts the more disabled people the more disabled you were the worse you were hit so it was the it was the polar opposite of what they were saying. The we, I mean, we don't like to use the word vulnerable um, <laughs> within the disabled people's mm. movement, but you know, using that term, the most vulnerable. It was the most vulnerable who were being hit the, the very hardest, and I think people just could not believe that. And people have come to re- distrust statistics because they can be misused. Yeah, so if people hadn't seen it, I, I think they found it very difficult to believe and and that's why the job the government did on the lies and the the spin actually to to some extent I think I think it worked there is a level of of self-interest in people's lives when when people are are so ground down when working conditions are getting harder people are are not going to look necessarily that widely at other social issues which are actually quite obscure and not given coverage in the mainstream media so there were there were other people that just you know didn't didn't know it was happening and they might see a figure and think that's a bit concerning but they haven't got time to kind of unpick it or question it too much you raised a really important point there about the intersections um with other forms of oppression so like that point about rape and people not understanding that violence against women isn't about like sexual attraction it's like an exercise of power and authority over female bodies and often that means that disabled women are more likely to be targeted and you know then there are the kind of large gaps in in health outcomes between different races in the UK there's clearly like a, a section of society that is suffering from all of these overlapping forms of oppression and their voices are not often, as we've spoken about so much during this show, being centred by a lot of different movements in the UK. Yeah, the more oppressed you are, the harder it is for you to to have a voice, Um, the more unseen you are, uh, and the less respected you are. Mm. Education is often cited as a reason why disabled people are absent from you know positions of power why we're why we continue to be unseen why we're not represented in in the workforce 
but from my experiences it's I mean that that is one factor people often don't have the educational experiences to be able to voice their issues in a way that will be understood that Mm. is respected in a way for people to think that that they're real to be articulated in a way that that sounds like you know what we think a robust argument should sound like but I think there's also the fact that we live different lives when we're disadvantaged just our our day-to-day lives are, are very very different and then I think that came when we were talking about the timing for this interview you know I said I said yeah we work we work on what's called crypt time Uh, uh, I'll I'll leave aside now you know discussions about reclaimed language um (laughs) (laughs) crypt though yeah crypt time so so we just mean we do things when we can uh, and when we're ready so any given time is always going to be a bit loose because anything can come up in your life when you're I discovered this word and I can't remember what the word is in Hungarian now. The Hungarians have a word which would be possibly translated as vulnerable, but it actually, a, a literal translation would be at the mercy of something. Um, so, yeah, I really wish we, we we either need to co-opt it, but it's quite difficult to pronounce, or we really feel we need an equivalent to describe people's lives as at the mercy of. We live at the mercy of all these different factors, you know, for people needing personal care support. Well, if you're, you know, you're dependent on that person to come in, to dress you, to help you to move if you you have an impairment uh so I live at the mercy of my mental distress when am I actually going to be able to function mm-hmm. I don't I don't know from one day to the next when what time of day the next day I'm going to be able to function the poverty stats that we we've gone over but but when you are in poverty um you live at, at the mercy of, of all kinds of things and that, that other people don't just don't haven't experienced uh, and don't realize are, are there so we because we can't function in the same way as as other people um we can't be in the same spaces in order to get to get our points across so we continue to be unseen the pandemic has obviously um worsened the situation of a lot of disabled people in the UK and disabled people have been particularly exposed to covid-19 I obviously want to talk about all the kind of political implications and reasons for that. But just on a personal level, how have you and your comrades in the disabled movement dealt with this during the pandemic? It must have been a really challenging time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it really was after 10 years of austerity, um, (laughs) welfare reform and December, the general election, December 2019 was such a low point. People were were devastated. Um, Mm. I I understand the political reasons for the outcome, but for a lot of people, it just felt like the country doesn't care about us. They, you know, we can have, you know, UN finding the government guilty of of violations of our rights. We can be suffering on this scale. Uh, You know, we death, as Frances Ryan, the disabled journalist, wrote in, mm. in her book, Crippled, you know, death has become part of the, the benefit system now, an everyday yeah. part of it. Uh, we can be living like this uh, and people go and vote them in again. <laughs> um, and people also knew that that would be the end of, of Corbyn's leadership. And what John and, and Jeremy represented to us were politicians who actually cared and actually spoke to us. And 
took our views seriously, were seriously engaged in improving the lives of disabled people, not just tokenistically, but seriously. And Mm. we didn't think we would get another Labour leader who would do that. We knew that, that, you know, uh, when, well, (laughs) 2015, the manifesto that Labour came into into that election with was so lacking um, in, mm. in terms of recognition of what was happening to disabled people. People were disgusted. And Deepak's main job in the run-up to the 2015 general election was stopping people, disabled people, from voting for UKIP because they cynically mm. saw the opportunity. And then we had under Harriet Harman, we had the, I think it's been called, a, disa- a DPAC member calls it the lab stain debacle, where they were whipped to abstain on the first welfare reform yeah. work bill. Um, mm. People were so upset about that. And there was, I think it was 48, only 48 MPs that that rebelled on that. And so that's what people expected us to go back to without Jeremy. Mm. And so... That was kind of the, the context for the pandemic then coming in. I mean, people were burned out. We, we Disabled people, we die because of the health outcomes you, you mentioned, tend to die a lot younger. So, you know, that, that's a part of our everyday life. But the stresses that the assessments put on people and, and some, you know, active suicides mean that the last 10 years has been even worse. So, you know, you have that grieving that, that grieving that goes on as well. Debbie Jolly was one of the co-founders of Deepak. She died uh, very suddenly of lung cancer in 2016. Mm. Uh, she was actually the person who had led the work with the UN. That was really her her baby. And the, the finding that kind of validated all, all her work, it came out in the last few days of her life and she was too confused to kind of understand it. So she never knew that all that work actually, you know, mm led to that so you can't you know we were carrying all this grief and and trauma anyway and then the pandemic happens um and we're faced with a situation where disabled people are most at risk and yet being completely ignored in a lot in the government response so disabled people who live in their own homes and employ personal assistance so have people coming in and out didn't receive any guidance for a few months they had to actually fight to be recognised as, as existing in order to get that guidance. And you also had uh, you, you had this situation where because of fears of the NHS being overwhelmed, doctors were coming out on TV. And, and in order to warn people, you know, you've got to take this seriously. They, they were saying that if you have an underlying health condition and, and you get COVID you you won't get treated for it and and treatment rationing Mm. goes on all the time anyway it's not a new thing but when the I think it was nice produced some guidelines which gave priorities for treatment uh, and that you know was clear that people with uh, basically disabled people people with underlying conditions wouldn't be prioritized and there was an outcry there was a bit of a public outcry about that which was which was actually great because this is an issue that we've been trying to get people to understand yeah. for ages. I mean, I've had several friends who with physical impairments, severe physical impairments, who gone into hospitals where they weren't known to the consultants and didn't, you know, 
because of emergencies and, and didn't come out. It's quite a common thing for disabled people not to get life-saving treatment based on judgments of their, their quality of life. Um, mm. it, but we're now faced with a situation where people are really at risk and they're being told you you won't get treatment if you if you get ill. So people were absolutely terrified. And then you have a media and public narrative leading from that that is discussing whether it's the economy is worth sacrificing people's lives for um, and talking about people in a way that their lives just were dispensable and didn't have the same value as other people's. Now, we know that these are these attitudes towards people with impairments are uh, you know they're they're common they're prevalent in society but they're not usually spoken and expressed as explicitly as they were and that was really upsetting for people this idea well we need to reopen the economy um, and some people will die and disabled people sitting at home knew well it's us and older people I mean that's another of the you know intersections between older and disabled people of course so that's obviously an example of this, but the government's now been accused of breaching disabled people's human rights again, 17 times at least during the pandemic, breaking the Equality <laughs> Act, the European Convention on Human Rights and the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. In what ways, other than what we've just been talking about, has the government continued to to break the uh, disabled people's human rights and how has that been affecting people um, on the ground? Yeah, so I think you're referring to uh, an article by John Pring of Disability News Service, who is just uh, just phenomenal in the work that, that he's done relentlessly mm. since since 2010. So there are issues there that, that he's included, such as lack of engagement, because never at any stage did the government think to consult disabled people themselves over, over their response. And it is a clear article within the United Nations Convention that they should not just be speaking to charities, but they should be speaking to disabled people ourselves. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this is actually, I can't remember if it's included in John's list or, or not, but a, another major issue has been the unlawful use of do not resuscitate orders right. that were being yeah. applied uh, to people's records or people were, were were being coerced into signing them other issues yeah I can't remember what's on, on John's list specifically but there's also a very strong report from the Oxford Uni- University Faculty of Law um, ab- about the kind of all the, the rights breaches that, that have occurred mm. the, the coronavirus act brought in easements to the care act 2014 I think that's very much that that would definitely be somewhere in John's list, I think. And we're, you know, very worried by that because disabled people have been receiving insufficient social care support for so long as a result, a direct result of cuts to local authority budgets. And this gives them the, the right not to have to assess people's needs. The Coronavirus Act also brought in easements to the children and families act so that affects children with uh, special educational needs and disability as it's as, as they call it so kids at home who won't be able to take part in education because online learning just just isn't accessible to them so there's a, there's a whole variety of ways in which disabled people have been you know impacted by by the the pandemic and the government's response to it 
yeah, we haven't obviously even talked about actually the um, issues with regards to children's social care and disabled children, because that's been uh, a part of, of the state that's been cut hugely. Obviously, local authorities have been the ones that have suffered the, you know, broad weight of the cuts. And those have often been passed on to vulnerable children and, and vulnerable adults. Yeah, I remember I had that big row with Ian Dale about cuts to children's social yeah. care on uh, on Good Morning Britain, which I thought kind of brought that issue out into the open somewhat. But it's still just something that we don't really talk or, or, or think about or discuss, I guess, just because, again, you know, children with disabilities and children who are in the the social care system generally just aren't recognized and aren't, aren't given a voice, which is a real tragedy. Yeah, it kind of it's always interesting to hear that perspective that it's not talked about because, you know, my day to day life is talking about these yeah, things constantly. Yeah. Um, so it's always, yeah, it, it's good to get a kind of a sense check <laughs> that, that they're not, that these are issues that aren't publicly discussed enough. Yeah, it's I mean, cuts to support. It, it, it's huge. And then you get unfortunate cases where, you know, mothers will take the lives of their disabled children. Mm. And sometimes the judges will rule, well, that was understandable. It's only understandable because that mother didn't have the support that she needed and because those children's lives weren't valued. Um, Parents, when they when they find out that their child is disabled, talk about going through a bereavement. Uh, and that's really sad that that you feel that you are disabled. Having a disabled child isn't having a proper child. There could mm. be a lot better support um, in, in all areas, yeah. but but especially with perceptions that disabled people have the same value as non-disabled people have the same human intrinsic human worth. Yeah, and like related to that question do you think that for all those reasons you know including the fact that we should be treating everyone's lives as of equal weight that the government should be aiming for a zero covid strategy yes (laughs) absolutely they should be they should be and they could have done so much more in those early days of the pandemic we heard cummings uh was reported as favouring a herd immunity strategy. Johnson took advice from the Swedish chief scientific advisor in summer, I think, when, you know, he avoided harder lockdown measures coming in. The, The media talked about Sweden so much in those early days. And I think it's really interesting that we haven't heard so much, uh, you know, since the findings came out um, about what they were doing, meanwhile, to older disabled people. Uh, I think I I don't think it's uh, wrong to say that what they were practicing was active euthanasia. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, sorry, I've <laughs> so much anger uh, about no, that, about that yeah. approach um, that, that they were concentrating so much on the economy mm. and they still are. They, they absolutely, that is still there. They're just seeing what they can get away with. Um, yeah. But they, they want us, they want people back at work uh, as soon as possible. Uh, one thing that, that Deepak's actually campaigning strategically around at the moment is the £20 uplift to, to universal credit, which the government is, is saying that they're going to be taking away in April. Sunex put in this alternative proposal of just giving people who, who benefited from the uplift £1,000 
Um, and and I, I, I'm not sure what the latest is on that. I think we're waiting for him to maybe announce something in the spring budget, but I see that as kind of like a payoff, kind of, here you are, here's a £1,000, now go back to, to work. Disabled people with underlying health conditions have now been shielding for nearly a year. I'm very lucky in that I don't have an underlying physical condition, so so I, I haven't had to... I personally haven't had to do that, but so well, nearly all my friends have, and obviously that takes a toll on on people's mental health. It also pushes their expenditures up, and people on legacy benefits, you know, didn't benefit from that twenty pound uplift. I think we should remember people have had increased heating costs, increased food costs, because obviously they can't go out, so they're relying on on online deliveries, and they're and they're living in terror. And we now have this new strain, which is much more spreadable. So we're not in a different disabled people aren't in a different situation from from what they were, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, it's more likely if they go out now that they will catch COVID, uh, and so their lives are in some respects even more at risk. And yet there's a clear push that they want to open up the economy, as they call it, you know, get everyone back to work as soon as possible. And that's that's really frightening. Thanks so much, Ellen. I think we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World Twin. Oh, thank you again for having me.